Alright, Ezekiel chapter 15, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of the branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? If it has been put into the fire for fuel, and the fire has consumed both ends, and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it still be made into anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I set my face against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged and comforted and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes, We always pray for you that our God will consider you worthy of His calling and will, by His power, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith. Does that trouble anyone here this morning? This whole idea of walking worthy of the calling... Don't raise your hands, but I ask you to consider, does anyone here feel like they are worthy of a perfect God? If you do, (laughs) you're in the wrong church. (laughs) How can we be worthy of God? In fact, the reality is, and you and I know this in and of ourselves, this whole idea of value and worth is a very elusive thing for human beings. We're going to consider this this morning and think it through, and I want you to keep that in the back of your minds, this idea of how in the world am I supposed to be valuable to God? Me. Oh, I know there are other people valuable to Him. I've been deceived. (laughs) But how can I be valuable to God? How in the world can He use someone like me? Well, Father, I pray that You will show us how. And I ask this morning that you will lift the veil on this idea of value and worth and how messed up it is in our culture and how right it is with you. Help us to see as you see and understand with our hearts by the revelation of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. Every single person in here wants to be valued. We all do. Oh, there may be times in your life where you say, oh, no, no, it's cool, I don't need to be valued. No, you do. And you want someone at least, or something in your life, to give a sense of meaning, a sense that you, you matter, a sense that your attendance counts, you know, for something. How do we develop that? Well, the world has one idea. In fact, our society, our world, tends to put dollar signs on value. We talk about our net worth. What's your net worth? And it's always defined in terms of financial holdings, real estate, investments, portfolio. That's your net worth. And if you, like me, have ever done a FAFSA form, the free 
what is it? Free something for financial student aid. Free application for financial student aid. You've got to fill it out. If you have a student in college, you've got to fill one of those out. And then they determine, based on what you fill out, what your net worth is and what they'll help you with. And I find out every year, as I do Hannah's and I've done Corey's, is that my net worth is... <laughs> I'm worth nothing! And they still won't give me any financial aid. I don't know how that works. Your net worth... Some go about drumming up value based on personal successes. We, we, we stack those up and go, see, I'm, I'm valuable here because of these things that I've done. And others seek to find meaning or value in a cause or a crusade or a mission, some kind of a life mission. And when one effort fails, we jump to a new one. And when that doesn't really work out so well, we try something else until we become exhausted or discouraged and in many cases despondent, ask any number of celebrities. Can you explain to me why celebrities get depressed? (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, my millions just aren't doing it for me me anymore. You know, I'm like, uh, give me that problem. Problem is, their millions wouldn't do it for me either. And success and and all of this, it's, it's such a messed up view, and yet it's the view, it's the view of our world. And Steve made the comment, we have that phrase, oh, he's so full of himself. And we all know what that means. He's arrogant. And yet, what our world does is say, but you've got to be full of yourself. It's an oxymoron. And it's moronic. God has a different way. God functions in a completely different economy and He reveals it to us through His chosen people, Israel. And we we need to do a little walk this morning to understand this. To go back and understand God's view of Israel, His chosen people. Why He chose them. What is it about them? And I want to do this with all due respect to my Jewish friends, but Israel was not chosen because they were innately special. There's nothing unique about Abraham. Nothing special in Isaac. Nothing about Jacob that would make you say, Oh yes, Lord, he's the guy. Choose him. Nothing special in Israel. The historian Josephus tells us that at the entrance to Herod's temple, there was a magnificent gold vine. Solid gold vine. Of hammered work that wrapped itself all around the pillars and, and went across the door of the entrance of the temple. It was huge. It would gleam in the sun. The grapes on that vine, they say those clusters were each the size of a man. So six foot clusters of grapes and this beautiful golden vine all around the entrance to the temple. Why? Because early on in prophecy, Israel has been called the vine. Israel the vine. Herod wanted to symbolize that in the front of of his remade, redone temple. Going all the way back to the psalmist Asaph, Psalm 80, verse 8 says, You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and and it took deep root, and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea, and its roots to the river, Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? Asaph wanted to know, God, you chose this people, this vine. And now it's starting to get broken up. What's going on, Lord? Isaiah would come along and the Lord would fully form this image of the vine through the prophet Isaiah. I want you to turn over there first. Isaiah chapter 5, back to the left of Ezekiel. Isaiah chapter 5. I went back to some old notes on this from when we studied Isaiah not too long ago. 
and realize we didn't pull this one apart as much as perhaps we could have. And so I want to show you a few things in Isaiah chapter 5. From there we're going to leap around to a couple other places before returning to Ezekiel. Isaiah chapter 5 has long been called the the psalm of the vineyard. The psalm of the vineyard. Through the prophet Isaiah, God speaking of His people Israel. Listen to this. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Let me just ask you, who do you think the well-beloved is here in this verse? Any guesses? The well-beloved? Israelites? Israel? Israel is divine. Israel is the vineyard that belongs to the beloved. The beloved is, I believe here, Jesus. My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so the Lord says, let me sing a song for my well-beloved concerning His vineyard. He dug it all around, verse 2, removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine, and the choice vine there is Israel. The choicest vine. The word in the Hebrew is sorakah, and it means a highly valued, bright red type of grape. A royal grape, if you will. And Israel is that choicest vine. We know that because down in Isaiah 5-7, the Lord tells us, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. So it can't be the well-beloved, it's the vineyard, it's the vine itself that speaks of Israel, and the beloved again, speaking of the Lord. And if we go all the way back to Jacob's prophecy, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, prophesied over his sons on his deathbed, Genesis 48 and 49. And in Genesis 49.11, we're told, he ties his foal to the vine, speaking of Jesus and his donkey's colt, to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. It's an amazing prophecy. Because even back there, old Diane Jacob, not understanding what he was saying, but proclaims that there comes this one through the line of Judah who ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. The choice vine is Israel. The one who ties his colt to the vine, if you will, hitches his wagon to the vine, is Jesus. Jesus who would come as a Jew. Jesus who would have Jewish blood flowing through his veins. Jesus' Jewish blood that would be like the blood of grapes on the cross as it poured out in his death. God in the person of Jesus Christ comes through Israel the choice vine and spills his blood-red, grape-colored blood on the cross. Now, this all sounds like Israel was choice and highly valuable. I mean, wow. You're going to choose a people, and then your own son's going to come through this people. This has got to be a pretty special people, right? Read on in Isaiah. He built a tower in the middle of it. That is, in the middle of the vineyard. The tower speaking of Jerusalem. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And I pointed out before, the Hebrew word there for worthless ones can also be translated stink berries. I'd love to see that on a shelf in Safeway. Stinkberry wine. I don't think it would sell. Just me, but I'm thinking that wouldn't be a real high mover in this door. Stinkberries. I planted my vine. I took the vine out of Egypt, planted it in the promised land, dug all around it, made a wine vat for it, built a tower in the midst of it, and it produced stinkberries. I hear that and I think, wow. 
that doesn't sound too good about the people of Israel. Well, it gets worse. It goes on and says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What is more, or what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds not to rain or to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. There's your choice, mine. God chose it, and yet it could produce only worthless grapes. I read that and I think, boy, I get Israel. I understand. I in my life have felt at the same time chosen by God and at the same time completely worthless to be chosen at all. Maybe you've asked the question, God, why would you ever have chosen me? Or why would you ever choose me? Or what do you really want to even have to do with me? Well, Jesus picked up on this parable. Go there, go from there to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21 in the New Testament. For Jesus reaches back to Isaiah, Isaiah writing his parable of the vineyard 750 years before Jesus comes along, and now Jesus picks up this same parable, and we know because he quotes directly from it, but he expands the parable a little bit. Matthew 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who, quote, planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower, directly from Isaiah. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. And of course, he's speaking about the prophets who came in groupings. There was a group of prophets who came around the time of Isaiah, and then another group of prophets who came around the time of Jeremiah, and there were a few in between. And then it says in verse 37, but afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. So you know, 400 years after the last prophet, Jesus comes along, shows up on the scene, God sent his son. But Jesus continues in verse 38, But when the vine growers saw the Son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Who are the vine growers? Well, if the vineyard is Israel, the vine growers are the leaders of Israel. The chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who led the people. And they would throw the son out. Well, they hear this parable and they say to him, he said, what will he do to those vine growers? And they say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. You ever speak before you realize what you're saying? And I see the the Jewish leadership here blurting out what they knew was the correct answer and then starting to realize, oh, but wait, that's us. He's talking about us. 
Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. That is the leadership of Israel. And given to a people producing the fruit of it. Now pay close attention to that phrase. The kingdom is now going to be given to those who will produce fruit. Those who will make something of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Israel was God's choice vine. Chosen, drawn out of Egypt, planted in the promised land, but they were his choice vine not because of their innate worth, but because he chose them. And that's what needs to be understood because I don't even think Israel understood that. I think something happened, which we'll see. That changed the perspective a bit. And it's very easy to go from realizing how wonderful it is to be chosen to really start to think that you're worth something. Last night, uh, Josiah and family were all over at the house with my family and we're all hanging out. We were playing this game. What was the game called? Uh, the resistance. The resi- no resistance? The resistance. The resistance. So it's this card game, you know, that you play, and there are enemies, and there are good guys on the game. And, and the very first round, I got picked to be on the team that goes on the quest. Picked me. You know what's funny about that? Immediately, there is something in the human heart. It's just a silly game, but there's something in the human heart that goes, yeah, I got picked. You know why? Because I'm worth something. Obviously, because he chose me. Now, I didn't know that, was it Josiah who picked me the first time? I think it was, and he was just trying to draw me out to prove that I was a worthless player. But that's another story. (laughs) Or back when we were kids out on the playground, and and you would choose up sides. Man, you wanted to be picked early because that spoke to your value. Hey, guess what? You weren't special because of your innate value. You just felt special because you were chosen, right? Israel was chosen, and all of a sudden began, well, to feel special about themselves. And they produced stink berries. Their value became very clear. What they had to offer was worthless. But for all of this, God still, even today, highly values the Jew. Why? Well, not because they're Jews, but because He values them. Their uniqueness, their peculiarity, their, their chosenness, their value is in the fact that they were chosen by God. And we see this beautifully portrayed. Go back to Ezekiel, but look ahead just one chapter. We're going to get into this Wednesday night, and it is one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture dealing with the Jewish people. But note what God says about their value, about where it really comes from. If you pick up in verse 3 of Ezekiel 16, The Lord is speaking, He says, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. I'm going to let you think about how gross this is. So, this is a baby, picture of a baby who's walking around with the cord still strapped up, still connected. Ugh. And he says, Nor were you washed with water for cleansing. 
Have you ever seen a live birth? And I have suffered through three of them. Hey, I was there. Those were three stressful evenings, I can tell you. So I'm there, and I know what a baby looks like. And it does not look like it does in the movies. Isn't it precious? No, it's gross. It's disgusting. Clean it off. Doc, do you have a hose? Something. Let's clean this situation up. And the Lord says, Israel, He's talking to you. You were not washed with water. So we got a picture of this newborn precious baby with the cord hanging out, not washed with water, not rubbed with salt. I'm not sure why. I don't think we'd do that today. Or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into an open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live! Yes, I said while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like the plants of the field. And then you grew up. Then you became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, and yet you were naked and bare. Well, then I passed by you and saw, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. And I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. That's why Israel is special. Because they became His. Because God said, I want you to be mine. You are my vine. You are my precious vineyard. You are my choice. And immediately something happens when we realize we're chosen by God. Wow, value! That's the value of Israel. Chosen not because they were worthy, but worthy because they were chosen. And it's the same today in the church. But here's the danger. We can begin to assume that because we're chosen, there's something valuable in and of ourselves. Something we did to achieve or receive that choosing. And I'll tell you this, non-Christians look at Christians oftentimes and go, they think they're so special. Do we? You know what? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I'm kind of proud of the fact that I'm at church every Sunday. Well, Rick, you're paid to be. That's beside the point. (laughs) Sometimes I exult in our times of worship and that I'm so close to God. Sometimes I'm a little proud of my Christianity. And so sometimes the outside world is right. But the bottom line is that true and lasting worth comes from being valued by God. It is not innate in us. It comes from Him. Listen to this verse. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory, to the church, and in Jesus Christ, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, Paul says, because of this, because of His great glory, because He can do more than you can even imagine, therefore, I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. The basis of my call to live a worthy life, to be worthy of God, is what God does. 
Now keep this all in mind and go back over just one chapter to Ezekiel 15 and walk this through with me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is, it's not. As a matter of fact, not only is the wood of a vine not better than the wood of the trees in the forest, it's not even as good as the wood of the trees in the forest. What are you talking about, Rick? Well, how does grape wood compare to, say, mahogany? Or oak when it comes to building furniture? How does it compare to spruce or maple when it comes to building fine guitars? Okay, let me speak in my language for a moment here. My first guitar was a Yamaha, cost about 150 bucks off the shelf of a, of a music store. It was cheap, and it was made cheaply. It was made out of plywood. There's nothing really to it. The older the guitar got, the worse it sounded. This sweet little guitar over here... <laughs> has a top of Engelman spruce. The sides and the back are Indian rosewood. The neck is Indian rosewood and ebony along the fingerboard. It is made of what they call tone woods or hardwoods, which are very valuable, good, solid woods. And it's because of that that as this guitar ages, and it's getting about 15, 20 years old now, it sounds better than when it was first made. It increases in value. And that's the deal with woods. I've yet to see even a cheap guitar made from leftover vines. I mean, try it sometime. Walk into a music store and say, hey, you have any guitars made out of vines? You know, it's like dried up and then put together. Have you seen what a vine looks like when it's dried up, when it's disconnected? It turns into paper. And then it just shrivels up and withers away and dies. And even burning it is no good because it burns in a flash. They can't burn long. It's no good for fuel. I'm getting ahead of myself. The Lord says in verse 3, can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? You can't even hang your hat on it. Take a vine, put it on the wall, nail it in and put a hat on it, it'll fall off because the vine just withers and dries off and dies. And he says further, if it's been put into the fire for fuel and the fire has consumed both of its ends, and its middle part has been charred, has it been useful for anything? It's not even good for fuel. It's a big waste. There is no intrinsic value in the vine whatsoever. Behold, verse 5, while it is intact, it is not made into anything, how much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred can it still be made into anything? Ashes to ashes, man. This vine is worthless. God is sending a message here. Remember, Israel is the vine. Israel, who was so proud that it was chosen, the choice vine of the Lord, And in this prophecy, specifically, God is speaking to Jerusalem and its Jewish inhabitants. The prophet Hosea, back in Isaiah's day, Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, says, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit, uh uh-oh, for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. These are pagan idols. And he says their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Then Jeremiah comes along. A hundred years later, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord says, For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds. God did that in freeing the people from Egypt. But you said, 
I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every green tree, you have lain down as a harlot. Yet, I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? How? I'll tell you how. Israel began to, as so often we can do, began to believe in their own chosenness as something innate. They were choice because they were special. And again, I mean no offense to any Jewish people, but gang, that's all of us. That we start to actually think there's some value in and of ourselves. Add to this Jesus parable in Matthew 21, you have a picture of a vine that began to believe in its own self-importance. How is the focus on self-esteem working out in our education system? It is just so ironic. Like I said before, we say on the one hand, oh, he's so full of himself, but on the other hand, we teach children to be full of themselves. You need to be self-important, self-assured, self-fulfilled. we got to work on that self-esteem. And my friends, self-esteem cuts us off from the true source of our value. When I'm looking to the self like an empty vine, but I think there's some value in and of me, what I bring to the table. Lord, you really want me on your team because, hey, it's me. I've got some value to share here. And I'm an empty vine. I woke up, I shared this first hour, I woke up at 3 o'clock this morning and God started dealing with me. And I I realized, actually in between services, I think I realized why God woke me up last night. I told Him I didn't appreciate it because I had to preach this morning. (laughs) And I woke up and God started reminding me of some things. He started reminding me of when I was a young youth pastor. And I was thinking back to those days and how important it was to me to succeed in what I was doing. And God showed me a picture and it wasn't very pretty. I did not like what I saw. It kept me awake for about an hour this morning. I saw a picture of a guy who was in youth ministry for himself. Now, somehow, wondrously, God saved some kids. But I'll tell you what, it wasn't because of me. I was on the fast track to being successful. I wanted the biggest church I could be involved with. I wanted to be a name guy in youth ministry. And I was lying there in bed this morning ashamed because I realized how much my early ministry was all about me. And it was not about the Lord. And it was not about saving the kids. I liked the kids. They were fine. But my value was right here. And when things went wrong... I crashed. When things were wonderful, I was a hot shot. And I think the Lord reminded me of that this morning. He let me go back to sleep eventually. But I think He reminded me of that this morning and say, Rick, what you're talking about today is the deal. And when you try and dredge up that value, that worth inside yourself, it's going to fail you. Your worth is from me. Your worth comes from the Father. The vine, in and of itself, is a worthless wood. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be confident. I'm not saying we shouldn't be assured. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be fulfilled. I'm saying that self-confidence, self-assurance, self-fulfillment are a lie from the pit and will leave you empty and dried, withered and dead. The value, 
The value comes from Jesus Christ. Again, the vine's picture of Israel. Just as Israel is an example for us all. Brothers and sisters, you tell me, what is the one thing on earth a vine is good for? Fruit. That's it. That's all it does. It is a conduit for the nutrients to get from the soil and from the seed into the fruit. That's all the vine, that's all the branches of the vine is ever good for. It has no other value whatsoever with one exception in all of history. One exception. There was a vine of innate intrinsic value. On the night of the Passover, Jesus led the apostles out of that upper room and through Jerusalem and down across the Kedron Valley, up the other side into Gethsemane. There was a full moon that night. It was Passover, so of course there would have been a full moon. And there are a lot of Bible commentators who believe that as Jesus was walking, He was teaching. John 14, 15, and 16, what we call the, the Thursday night discourse, that it wasn't all just in the upper room, but perhaps it as, was as they were walking onto Gethsemane, because there's an interesting moment where Jesus pauses. And I think it's possible that he pointed up to that beautiful golden vine on the temple and he turned to his apostles and he said, I'm the true vine. I'm the vine. Turn in your Bibles to John 15. John chapter 15. In the middle of this conversation, Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's the only true vine. He's the only vine ever to walk the face of the earth who was value in and of himself, who was worthy because of who he was and who he is. Remember what Jacob said, talking about the line of Judah and of Jesus. He ties his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Jesus became... As we've talked about in here before, he became the perfect Jew. Jesus coming through the Jewish people was a Jew like no other Jewish person could ever be. The ultimate light of the world. God called Israel to be the light of the world. They failed at it. They produced worthless grapes. And so through the Jewish people comes Jesus, the perfect, the ideal Hebrew. And he in and of himself had the value, that innate goodness, that innate worthy nature. He did what no man or woman could ever aspire to do. That is be essential in and of himself. The essential vine. And all the value and the worth and the power and the potency to produce fruit was in Jesus himself. He's the conduit to the Father. He's the one who says, no man comes to the Father except how? Through me. Because I am the true vine. I'm the only one who can source you, who can produce for you who can make you what God intends for you to be. Without me, Jesus says, as we'll see in a moment, you can do nothing. Nothing. And the Greek word for nothing, you're going to want to write this down, means nothing. (laughs) Do you get the beauty of the incarnation of Christ? What a wondrous thing. God made flesh. He comes into this world, and Paul says in Philippians 2.7, He emptied Himself. Well, that's kind of like a vine. It's just an empty tube that, you know, connects for the grapes. 
He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Emptied like a vine, and that typical vine, again, being the, the nutrients, getting the nutrients to the fruit. So Jesus shows us in human flesh what it's like to be filled with the Spirit of God and produce fruit. And then He says, and you can do the same thing. Or you can't be divine like Jesus. But you can be like divine. Some of you will catch that later. You can be like the vine. You can be filled with the Spirit and therefore produce fruit. And Jesus talks about how. And I want you to understand this. Two things. Jot down two applications that were done this morning. First off, the branches must be connected. The branches must be connected. If you would hope to have any value, you've got to be connected to the only source of value in this world, in all of history, and that is Jesus. He says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now already, we're off to a bad start. Because I hear what Jesus says, and I go, ooh. I don't know if I like either one of those things. What are you talking about, Rick? Well, he says every branch in me, so that would be you and me, that would be believers in Jesus, right? Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. That doesn't sound good at all. In other words, brothers and sisters in Christ, oh, you're saved by grace, but if you don't produce good fruit, you're out of here. Clean out your locker, you're no good. We don't want you here. You don't belong in the church, you're not bearing fruit. And I hear a verse like that and I sit down and go, oh, what about those times in my life where I'm really not? When I'm not really doing anything for Jesus. I was on vacation for three weeks. I did nothing. I wasn't bearing fruit. Am I at risk? How does this square with grace? I thought I was saved by grace. At the end of verse 2, it's not a whole lot better. He says, hey, in every branch that bears fruit, oh good, this, if I'm bearing fruit, He prunes it! <laughs> so that it will bear more fruit. We always assume that that pruning is hard times and persecution and you know stripping the vines. You get almost this picture of an evil vine dresser out there. Well, this one's bearing fruit, but I know it can do more. Strip, rip, tear, cut. And I go, I don't... That still doesn't sound like grace. Well, the problem is with my interpretation. The problem is with my understanding. A couple things to note at the end of verse 2 where he says, the branches that produce fruit are pruned. How does he prune us? Now, I know persecution does bring about sanctification. I get that. I know that pain and problems and sorrow in our life can also be used by the Lord in our lives. However, I don't believe that's what he's talking about. He says, and look at the context, He prunes it so it may bear more fruit. And He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. The number one tool that God uses to prune a fruit-bearing vine is His word. And we are cleaned, we are pruned by it. And it happens to me all the time. I come in here Wednesday night, I'm not just teaching. Wednesday night, I'm going through this and I'm sharing and stuff is hitting me. And you know what's happening? Pruning takes place. In my life. I I, I hope for you too. But as I'm in the Word of God, suddenly all these stupid ideas that come into my human brain, they get pruned. God says, ah, that's, that's not going to bear fruit. That's no good. That's kind of foolish, you know. And I see this as I'm in the Word. The Word, Paul says, we are washed. 
with the water, with the Word. Cleansed by the washing of water with the Word, Ephesians 5.26. And that's the context here. The pruning connects this word, you are already clean. The word clean there speaks of what a vine dresser does lovingly to the vine. And by the way, for the vine dresser to clean the vine, it's got to be close to the vine. And he's right there pruning, pulling off the stuff that's really useless, that's not going to help you in your life, so that you may have more value in bearing fruit. I'm clean like a pruned branch. The pruning process of the Lord is not always pain and problems. It is most often the Word of God. Which is why I was just shouting cheers last week listening to Glenn talk about the Word. And saying, man, read it. And meditate on it. And memorize it. And live it out. Because in so doing, God strips away all the junk of the world that would confuse and that would take away from the value that He wants to put in you. But there's more here. Jesus says something else. At the beginning of verse 2, He makes that comment, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And that has always made me uncomfortable. Because I want you to notice clearly, He says, Every branch in me. These are my people. All of those who are in me. Christians. Followers of Jesus. You've given Him your life. You you love Him. You are in Him. If you're not producing fruit, He takes you away. That doesn't sound like grace. How exactly does that work? Go closer to the Word and something amazing shows up. God is not just a fruit inspector. Watching your works and ready to pounce and toss you out when you're not doing enough. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit... Well, the word takes away there is aero in the Greek. Aero. And you want to make a note of this because it is significant. There's a misunderstanding both in the culture, in the text, and in the word itself. Aero, what's translated here, takes away, is also translated in the Greek, lifts up. Lifts up. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. Up. Let me give you the cultural context for understanding why I believe that's the correct translation. If you drive out um, Best Road today, go through the Skagit Valley, you'll note on either side of the road a couple different places there are vineyards out there. And the way that we plant grapes and grow vineyards today is we put them up. Right? They, they run along a fencing or, or a hedge or they're, they're tied up so they're not down on the ground. They're actually up because vine growers have learned something over the years that if you put it up off the ground, the fruit grows better. In the days of the Middle East in Jesus' day, the vines grew right on the ground. And so what would happen is the vine dresser would come along, see a vine that was not producing fruit, and he wouldn't just take out his axe and cut it off and throw it in the fire. He would take that vine and lift it up and put a rock underneath it so that it got more sun. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He lifts up. If you are in Jesus and you're not bearing fruit, you know what you need? You need more sun. S-O-N. You just need more sun. The beauty of what Jesus says here about the vine is that we are like the branches off the vine and He says, hey, if you're in Me and you're not producing fruit, I want to lift you up for more sun. You need more of Me. Because the only way you're going to produce fruit is by more of Me. 
And if you are producing fruit, oh, that's wonderful. I'm going to clean you so you can produce even more fruit. And that is the grace of our Lord Jesus. That's how He's working. And it is such an absolute key for Christians to understand. He goes on in verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do... What is that word, Greek scholars? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I got an email I got to share. I was looking forward to sharing this. I got this a few weeks ago from Ryan. Ryan Shearer. Some of you know Ryan. I, let me just read this to you. He said, I've been agonizing lately over passages in the Gospel where Jesus emphasized that the bearing of fruit is a necessary part of being in Him. And up until today, these types of verses were hitting me like a hidden requirement, like a sucker punch. Wait, I thought, I accepted Jesus, but these verses say now that if I don't bear fruit for Him, I'm going to be thrown into the fire anyway. Jesus, what gives? He writes, I thought it wasn't about my works. I don't have the strength in me to bear fruit. That's the whole reason I came to you in the first place. Can I get an amen on that? I did not come to Jesus because I thought I had something He needed. I come to Jesus because He has everything that I need and I got nothing. And I hope we tell the world that clearly. I hope you're telling friends and family that. It's not that that you've got something for Him. It's that He has everything for you. Well, so Ryan goes on. He says, My walk of faith became one of misery and terror. And I know a lot of Christians in that same boat. Well, now I've got to live a life worthy of His calling. And that's hard to do. How do I do that? He says, Jesus was faithful, sure. But these verses seem to say that now part of my salvation depended on me. Which meant I was a dead man. I'd just come to grips with the fact that I wasn't faithful. How was I ever going to minister if faith was this miserable? Today I begged Jesus just to plainly tell me what I was supposed to do with all this. Ryan says, I've been following along with your Bible study at work and am currently near the end of Exodus. After work, I drove to the gym. And pulling into the parking lot, you quoted a verse and God grabbed my shoulder, metaphorically, and shook me, shouting, Listen up! Also metaphorically. So I rewound. I listened to the verse again. I got out of my car, dug my backpack out of the trunk, fumbled and manhandled my Bible from out of all the junk I keep in my backpack, and my Bible fell open in my hands to the same verse which I had just heard you say twice, John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give you. <laughs> Ryan writes, the researching I did on this verse and the context seems to tell me that the believer in Jesus simply needs to keep his or her focus on following Him and drawing closer to Him and they can't help but be fruitful and therefore pleasing to God. Does this sound like an accurate reading of it? Yes, it is, Ryan. He says, I feel like it is since my spirit started to party after I read it. But he said, but I'm looking for the truth first and spirit parties second. And I think Ryan has discovered both. 
both the truth and partying in the Spirit of the Lord, gang, grace really is grace. You really are saved by grace. And if there is fruit produced in your life, it is produced by the grace of God. It is produced by being connected to Jesus. And if you're not bearing fruit in your life, man, you need more time in the sun. And if you are producing fruit in your life, God wants to produce even more by purifying you and cleansing you and pruning you with the pure and perfect Word of God. And that's how it all works. Praise the Lord. I get excited thinking about this. But there is one last issue we've got to address. And it's the second application here. Branches connected to the vine are going to bear fruit. Because that's how Jesus works. What about the disconnected branches? The disconnected branches will be consumed. Verse 6, Jesus says, If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. What branches are burned? Fruitless ones that are connected to Jesus? No. Uh, Worthless ones who are in Him? No. Branches that choose not to abide in Jesus are the worthless branches. I was a worthless branch before I chose to abide in Christ. My life without value. The world's value system, again, is upside down, twisted, and impossible. It only leads to misery and despondency. God's value system is be connected to me, and I will pour my value into you. I will saturate you with my value, and fruit will be the result of this. But disconnection from the vine not only means a fruitless, worthless life, but the disconnected branch ultimately withers and is consumed by fire. And we've got to be honest about that. We cannot play games only telling the positive side of the Gospel and avoiding the truth that if you choose to reject Jesus, if you reject connection to the vine, you will be burned. That is the outcome. It's not what anybody wants, and especially not Jesus. Jesus said hell was created for the devil and his angels, not for you. But if you refuse to connect to the vine, your life will wither and dry and you will be worth nothing but being thrown into the fire. Hebrews 10.26 tells us if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And my friends, as the church runs down this road, a blind acceptance of anything and any behavior in anyone and stops telling the reality that if we go on sinning willfully, there is the fury of a fire that will come then we are leading people down a path to their own destruction. I read this week where the the, um, founder of Exodus International, remember the Exodus International, which is the movement of, basically of, of people who were homosexual, who have come out of homosexuality, and Exodus from that into a life with Jesus. And the whole focus of Exodus International was helping homosexuals become heterosexual again. Through faith in Jesus through connection to Him. They're closing their doors. The founder, and I didn't read all of the article, but the founder was saying the purpose for Exodus International just isn't really here in our culture anymore. And so his new vision, his new purpose, is to help churches know how to receive the homosexual community. 
I don't know what to do with that. Homosexual or not, we're all sinners, right? We all fall short of the glory of God. But I'll tell you what, if if you come to the Bridge Fellowship, and let's put it in a different category, if, if you come to the Bridge Fellowship and you're heterosexual and you're living together, you're living in sin. I don't tell you that out of judgment. I tell you that because I don't want you to go on sinning willfully and face the fury of a fire that is real and legitimate. And if we just as the church kind of blandly and blindly say, hey, you know what, just embrace the homosexual community as they are, yeah, we'll have gay couples in churches and we'll just learn how to relate to them and not be afraid of homosexuals. I'm not afraid of homosexuals. I'm not homophobic. I see a people who have been deceived and who need Jesus. And if the church shuts its mouth to that message because we don't want to be seen as intolerant, then we are just as good as signing these people's tickets to hell. Why would we do that? I've said before, is it more loving to ignore a sin so that someone ends up going to hell? Or is it more loving to confront that sin and say, look, I I, I understand simple behavior. I am saved by the grace of Jesus. He wants you to be saved too. Give it up and come to Him. There is a reality. Hebrews 12.29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. You either connect yourself to the vine who is Jesus Christ and He pours out His grace and you produce fruit and a righteous life that is not of your own doing. Or you remain disconnected from the vine saying, I will do it my way and I will produce my own value and you will be a withered vine and you will be thrown into the fire. And that is the reality of the Word of God. This is not Rick's Word. It's God's Word. And I take you back one last time to the example of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 15, verse 6. Just listen to this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I have set my face against them, though they come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. And so we see the example in a visceral, graphic way with Israel as they were driven out of the land. And the fires that followed them, uh, the fires of sword and of famine and of beast, while they were in the land, they come out of the land and they go into the fires of captivity. And God does this all. God says, look world, I'm showing you I'm showing you the pattern. This is where it all leads. You know what's marvelous? After the land they loved was consumed and left desolate and for almost 1,800 years remained just the dump of the earth, today Jerusalem is a thriving city. Today Israel is a land reborn. Today we see prophecy fulfilled before our eyes with Israel. Isaiah 66, Ezekiel 35 through 39, which we're going to get to, and it's going to blow all of our minds. Jerusalem at the center of nations. Jerusalem at thriving, the capital of a revived, restored, revitalized Jewish state in the land of Israel, the charred embers of the vine that was burned up. Look at what God has done. He's breathing it back to life. He's restoring value And only God can do something like that. What are you saying, Rick? Well, let me ask you, was this because of the determination of the Jews? Was it the Jewish self-will that brought about 
the state of Israel? Interesting, when one-third of all Jewish people on earth were killed right before it happened, it shouldn't have happened at all. And it was not because the Jewish people just out of the blue said, well, let's go home now. We've been traveling. We've been dispersed long enough. God is restoring value there. And there's a picture for us. The true vine of Jesus takes the burned out branch of Israel and is beginning to work in it. Ezekiel will later refer to it as dry bones that suddenly stand up and get enfleshed. And God says, and ultimately I'm putting my spirit back in my people. Now among us, what does this mean? It doesn't mean there's not the reality of hell if you remain disconnected from the vine. What it means is this. While it is still called today, if you are burned out, if your life is charred, if you are feeling so absolutely worthless you can't even imagine how God can restore anything good in your life, guess what? He's doing it with Israel and He wants to do it with you. He wants to give you your value. You are worth so much to Him You may feel like you're worth nothing to yourself. You may feel like you're worth nothing to anyone in the world. But to Jesus Christ, you are worth His life. And the true vine would say to you this morning, Come to me. I choose you. Be on my team. I will give you value. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So whatever you ask of the Father in my name... He may give to you. Jesus, thank you, thank you. These words are not even close to enough. When I think back to all the times in my life when I've been a fool, and that goes back to probably about an hour ago. When I recognize all the times that I think more highly of myself than I should, and then the other times where I think very lowly of myself, Lord, all that just gets washed away by the beauty of You as the true vine. I am so thankful, Jesus, that You called me out. So thankful that You chose me. So thankful that anyone who would be Your choice branches have nothing else to do but to choose You. And that is my prayer this morning, that we will choose You today. Father, that those who are branches in You that are not bearing fruit would choose You to spend more time in the sun and therefore bear more fruit. And those branches in You, Lord, today that are bearing fruit would spend even more time in Your Word pruned and cleaned to bear even more fruit for You. And I pray especially right now, Lord, for those branches disconnected, withering, drying on the ground, For those here this morning among us who don't feel a connection to You, Lord Jesus, that today that connection would happen through faith in Your grace. As I pray, if that is You this morning, I invite You to pray after me. If You would seek value in Your life, the greatest worth You can ever know, would You just pray in Your heart these words to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I am a burned out, withered branch. And I need You to restore me. I want forgiveness for my sins. I need to know that I am valued by You today. I believe that You came as the true vine. That You died for me. 
I believe you rose again. And I believe you are the Savior. Be my Savior. Come be the Lord of my life today. Connect me to you. For this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.